Technobiotic. If there's 11 million bits of information coming into your senses, you know, the sounds, smells, colors, feelings, everything, you're only able to attend to maybe 90 to 100 bits of those at a time. And we call that selective attention. It's consciousness. That's what we're consciously able to see. It's like looking outside your house through a straw and thinking that everything in that straw is the entire world. Welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast. Episode 4. Join us on our journey to find humanity among technology. With our hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and Shane Carlson, as well as our special guest, Dr. Rebecca Bevins. Hello and welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shane Carlson. I'm here with one of my other co-hosts, Matt Drew, today. How you doing, Matt? Doing all right. Thanks. How are you doing? Not too bad. Uh, Laura wasn't able to join us today, but that's okay. One of the first things I want to talk about is uh, we had gotten a couple interesting questions by some folks on our episode one that we had with Charles Araujo around the new human age. So for those of you who watch that episode or listen to that episode, if you want to go look at some of the follow-up questions and some of Charlie's responses to that, you can find that on www.techno-biotic.com under the episodes and the show notes. So those are out there if you want to take a look at it. There's some really good responses and some additional clarifications on some of the subject matter that we talked about in the episode one. Today that we're recording is actually Valentine's Day here. And I, and I guess it's Valentine's Day everywhere, isn't it? This is one of those <laughs> international holidays that people love to love and love to hate. Speaking of that, one of the things that uh, recently caught my attention from a technology topical point of view was the uh, Google Super Bowl ad. And Matt, did you see that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know about you. I've got some mixed feelings on this. Yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting from a uh, just from a technical point of view and from a you know cry my uh, sappy eyeballs out point of view, <laughs> the the concept of utilizing technology to remember things and you know I use it every day to remember things like my schedule, where I need to be, what I need to do because without my phone I literally would not know where to show up or what I would be doing when I showed up to these places. But this one and and for those of you who haven't seen it, we'll drop a link to it in the show notes. It's a gentleman with Alzheimer's who is a widower and he wants to remember things about his wife that were important to him. And as he literally says, you know, Hey Google, uh, remind me, uh, that L Loretta loved to go to Alaska. Uh, you know, show me a picture of Loretta. And then later when he's trying to remember things, uh, he can ask it to, you know, tell me about Loretta and you know, Google will read back things that he had asked her to remember and uh, it'll choke you up. I mean, if you're a sentimental fool like I am and uh, prone to weepiness and highly empathetic. Uh, but but really, it's to me, it's kind of a, a teaser of where I think technology is going uh, for all of us who have normal yeah. cognitive abilities. And for those with impaired cognitive abilities, you know, the ability for technology to augment that piece of our brain to allow us to remember things and literally store memories outside of our own wetware and be able to recall those memories as we need them. And, and I think as the technology develops, literally giving us just-in-time nudges, and we talked about nudges a little bit on the last episode of 
the technology is already starting to nudge us if we're in a particular place at a particular time to remind us to pick up our dry cleaning or things like Mm -hmm. that. Part of the reason why it hit me the way that it did is I didn't expect that to come out of a Google ad. So that was interesting. It's kind of like the, the softer side to Google and thing that's always been one of the biggest I'd say criticisms of technology as as it becomes more complicated and useful and it has the capability to integrate itself more into our lives. It seems like now what's happening is that it's also becoming more user-friendly because like my grandmother, she barely can use a flip phone. I mean, she's 97. She just turned 97 and she she has a hard time you know, with a basic flip phone. So I really appreciate the fact that now we're getting into more intuitive voice command style tech that can be utilized in this way. Now, the other side of that, though, is kind of going back to what we were saying a couple episodes, like about Alexa. And, and there's always that big brother aspect to it. When you talk to Google, that message is going somewhere. It's getting stored somewhere. And so that's, that's one of the considerations that's always kind of in the back of my mind is, is it a useful tool? Yes. Is there that cool aspect of the tech? Yes, absolutely. But at the end of the day, from Google's perspective, they're not going to develop something just for the sake of developing something. There's, there is a business case behind it. There's, there's a reason why. Google has developed that platform. And that's what I'm curious about. Like, where is that going to lead? And what's that data going to be used for? Yeah, there, there's an interesting and popular expression uh, that, that you hear in tech all the time. If the product is free, you are the product, right? So the data that you generate around the use of that product ultimately becomes the way the company generates revenue around it. And so, of course, Google and Alexa and you know Amazon and all of these folks are taking the information that they get out of these interactions that we have with these devices and using it, selling it to marketers, using it to micro-target us with advertisements and other things. And it's very interesting. As somebody who's worked in technology uh, in the enterprise space for the last 20 plus years, I realized a long time ago that there is no such thing as real privacy when it comes to online. And you have to decide for yourself what the trade-off is for the convenience of the things that you're getting. And for me, it's, you know, I am willing to invest in the future that is coming with some of my own privacy, because honestly, the things that are out there, the things that I'm doing, I could give a damn who knows and who cares now my neighbors might be you know very interested to find out the things that i'm ordering from amazon and what i'm doing and what i'm watching at night but but ultimately it really bears no impact from my point of view uh around it now if they start using this data in more and more nefarious ways and this is something we're definitely going to explore in a future podcast around the concept of dark patterns and programming and how technology uses our own psychology against us to get the to get us to do things that enrich the corporations So we can definitely talk about that. But speaking of psychology, our last episode that we published was around the concept of mental health. And we shared a lot of our own experiences and recognizing the fact that we were not X 
experts in the domain of psychology and brain chemistry and all of these other things. So we actually decided to get a guest on the podcast this week who is an expert in those sorts of things. So I'd like to actually uh, welcome Dr. Rebecca Bevins, and I'll give her a quick intro here, and then we'll actually let her talk for herself. And I'm sure she's been analyzing everything we've been saying anyway. So, But uh, Dr. Rebecca Bevins is a natural teacher. She's actually been teaching since she was very, very young driven by her fundamental need to understand why people do what they do. And that led her into pursuing first a master's degree in human and non-human animal behavior and development in 2006 from UNR. And in 2008, she earned her PhD in cognitive neuroscience. So she's been a professor and teacher uh, in college for the last, uh, I think, about 15 years now around human behavior and psychology. We'd like to welcome her to the podcast. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Em excited to do this. Or, or should I call you Dr. Psycho Monkey? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you can call me whatever you'd like. Um, I answer to many things. Um, but yeah, Rebecca's fine here. That's and Dr. Dr. Rebecca, Dr. B. I don't really, whatever. We'll just call you Doc. How's okay, that? Doc's fine. <laughs> hey, All right. Just, just point of clarification. Can I steal the name Dr. Psycho Monkey? Because I love that. <laughs> Um, he jokes because I had psych monkey as my license plate for the longest time on my car. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's where psych monkey comes from and it's my, <laughs> I use it all over, but yeah, it's, it's, it's great. Yeah, we are all monkeys. We'll, right? we'll have to have her husband on the show sometime. Dr. Smash. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's two doctors in the house. Very, very different doctors. <laughs> very different doctors. <laughs> yeah. But that's a horse of a different color. Rebecca, Doc, if you will. Yeah. I know you had a chance to listen to our little very special episode on mental health, and you had a couple observations and, uh, along the way, but I'd also like to just dive into some other areas that we didn't cover on that episode. Talk to us a little bit about kind of the way you view technology and its intersection with humanity and kind of the, the positives of helping us, like we had just discussed about the, the Google ad, helping us augment our memory and cognitive ability and some of the downside and some of the, the darker side of technology and uh, psychology. Yeah, I'd love to. We, we could sit here for the next, you know, couple of years talking about all of the, the positives and negatives. The, the technology is great. I mean, I, I tell my students back back in the day when I was a kid, we, we didn't have cell phones and we had to remember people's phone numbers and we couldn't get a hold of all of our friends and unless we all agreed to be at the same location at the same time and we were all on time. But now, now, talk, now technology helps us stay, like you said, stay on top of the world, stay in, in touch with where we're at. You know, I, I, I jumped onto Facebook the other day to look for a picture. Like I know I posted it. And I was scrolling through all these pictures and it just became this walk down memory lane, like, oh, I remember that. Or, oh, he, you know, my child was so little or, oh, that was a great day. Or, and, and so it, it does help us to consolidate our, our memories or our experiences into a place that's easily accessible instead of, you know, the boxes of actual film that I have and pictures of my childhood. I can jump online and pull up photos from the last, you know, 15 years. And so there are a lot of benefits. The downside of that is I can't remember my son's phone number because it's programmed into my phone. And we have this gap now in being able to retain information because we're so used to just programming it and, and forgetting about it. We don't have to rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it. So 
I'm interested in seeing how in the next five to 10 years, our memories actually change or our ability to remember changes because we don't have that constant input. It's interesting you bring up the phone number one that that actually my <laughs> wife's sister uh, went to call her this morning and we had changed her number, I think about seven or eight years ago and given her old number to our 16 year old son. And it's amazing how many times people still memory dial her <laughs> old number mm-hmm. and get a hold of my son. And he just kind of laughs about it now. But it's funny because I can remember my first phone number from when I was a kid, right? Because they drilled it into our head, forced us to memorize it. I can remember two or three of our house phone numbers that we've lived at over the years. And we don't even have a house phone at this point. We're all mobile because there was literally zero benefit of having a house phone uh, at our house. But that's another technology conversation. But the fact that we don't have to remember that, as you said, we don't have that that memorization for those numbers and other things is is different. And, uh, you know, in the technology world, you know, we would we would call that an optimization. We have freed up that memory for something else. I was it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day, too, because I can still remember my college student ID number. I can still remember like my first driver's license number, but anymore everything's either like a qr code or or some kind of card that you scan so yeah it's like we're almost becoming desensitized to the necessity of rote memorization when it comes to critical pieces of information like phone numbers that's something that that like my daughter there's no way i'm going to ask her well first of all we don't have a landline anymore so it's not like she's ever going to be in a situation where she's going to say you know i remember my my phone number growing up, like that whole concept is, is completely obsolete, but she doesn't even know, nor will she probably ever need to memorize my phone number, my wife's phone number, like, you know, the gizmo watch that I was talking about a couple episodes back. All she has to do is just tap that gizmo watch and then click on either me or my wife and it'll automatically dial us. The number concept in terms of a way of either communicating to somebody or needing it for any identification purposes is, is I think, pretty much just kind of gone the way of the dodo. Yeah, I, I would too. And you bring up technology optimization. That's what the brain does. The brain optimizes. So whenever you do something over and over and over again, it rewires it by making connections in a very specific circuit pattern so that if that circuit pattern is slightly activated, you can pull it up. So like if you think about your childhood phone number, you can probably pull up the first three numbers or the first two numbers and the rest of it comes flying out. And that's because over and over and over, you repeated it through rote memorization and that literally changes your brain. It wires it. Your brain is really awesome in that anything you do over and over again, it automates it. It, it optimizes it. So this is where this is where our our bad habits come from. I mean, this is where a lot of our um, the things that we complain about. It's because we do them over and over and over again. And your brain's like, OK, hey, I got this. I will make a pathway for this. Now that we have a pathway, now it's automatic and you don't have to think about it. I'm saving you time for thinking about other things. And we've got this roadmap. So we don't study numbers over and over and over again. And so we don't have those brain maps for phone numbers anymore. Instead, probably a lot of you, when you think of someone's phone number, their face pops up and it's that that icon image that you have in your phone. So your brain's like, oh, I know what that looks like. 
push that button instead of I know what those numbers are. So that that rewiring is happening, but it's just happening in a different way. Technology is taking over some of the stuff so that our brain doesn't have to. But that gives our brain time to do other stuff that it may or may not be beneficial for us. My response to that, I, well, actually not even a response, it's questions. The first one is, what's the downside? The second part of that is, at what point, because we all look at technology as a way to become more productive. And so I think subconsciously our thought, our thought process goes, goes kind of this way, at least it does for me. I've got all this stuff to make me more productive. So I'm going to do more, take on more and put more in my bag. Yeah. And at what point this kind of goes back to something we were talking about a couple episodes as well. At what point do you say, no, that's enough. Like I can't, I can't do any more. I've got too much on my plate right now. I've got too much in my bag. And are we even capable of doing that anymore? I don't think we are. I know I'm not. We've glorified busy. Our, our culture has glorified this idea of being busy. And so because of that, the busier we are, the better we are. And what people don't understand is that we have limited amount of attention. There's what about 11 million bits of information. Let's let's pretend. So if there's 11 million bits of information coming into your senses, you know, the sounds, smells, colors, feelings, everything, you're only able to attend to maybe 90 to 100 bits of those at a time. And we call that selective attention. It's consciousness. That's what we're consciously able to see. It's like looking outside your house through a straw and thinking that everything in that straw is the entire world. Well, there's actually all this other information coming in. So by trying to do too much at once, what we're doing is we're splitting that straw in half. Each piece is getting smaller and we're, we're breaking up our selective attention. So we really become worse at whatever we're doing. So it's like the texting and driving, you know, t driving, it uh, takes a lot of attention and so does texting. And so when we try to, to merge those two, we see what happens. We can't do it. Um, so we glorify being busy, but we can't be busy. I, I, I try to explain to my students, you know, a theory of evolutionary psychology is that everything that our ancestors, all their genetics made it to us, obviously. They lived long enough to uh, procreate and passed on their genes. And humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. And we spent hundreds of thousands of years as hunter and gatherers. And we've spent how many years living in the society that we live in now? We are designed to live very simple lives. And now we're put in this very complicated world. And we think we can do it. We've convinced we, ourselves we can. We've designed all this technology to make it better. The technology makes it worse. And... And we're sitting here wondering why people have mass amounts of anxiety and depression and mental disorders are going through the roof. Comparatively, it's because we're really not designed for the society that we're in. And every time we try to make something make our lives easier, it makes our lives more difficult. Every time there's a Windows 10 upgrade or every time there's a computer change, we have to relearn the whole system. And now that's a cognitive burden. Also, we're, we're cognitive misers. We don't want to think. Our brain is 
2% of our body weight and uses 20% of the energy of the, the system of our body. And that is just a normal day. If, if you're thinking a lot or reading or like I tell my students, you know, you're in three classes and one day you go home and you're exhausted. It's because you're using even more energy because your brain's running. We don't like that. We like to make things as simple as possible, that optimization again. So we build more technology to make it easier for us, which just makes it harder. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> Sitting back, and I'm sure Matt's been doing the same thing, is like just literally taking in all that information you were giving out and the whole you know, 11 million bits of information, the ability to literally take, what is that? Let's see, if we can only do 90 to 100, is that 0.001%? I'll have to check my math in the show notes, but <laughs> like literally it is a fraction of a percent of the information that's coming at us that we are actually capable of processing at, at any minute. You talk about the increase in anxiety and the increase in depression and the increase of people generally being less and less mentally well as a part of all this stimuli coming at them from all points and just trying to keep up with that. I definitely want to poke in on that a little more, but I'll ask you a question is, are you seeing people's welfare, mental welfare increasing as a part of being connected to a, a lot of their peers and the way people work, especially I'm you know, looking at kind of the younger generation, the millennials, the, the Zoomers, and everybody who comes after them who are essentially they're digital natives, if you will. They, you know, they've never known a world like we did with some of the analog technology we had then. And today they're just surrounded with all of this digital technology, all of this information, and they literally have all of the information in the world at their fingertips. Do you see that benefiting them? Is there a positive or is there an upside to this or is it all downside? With everything, there's a positive uh, for sure. And with everything, there's a downside. The projection for the Zoomers, and I'm so glad I'm not the only one that uses that term, they're projected to have the highest suicide rate of any generation. They're projected to have the highest rate of anxiety and depression. They're also projected to have a shorter lifespan than their parents. And when this speculation happens, the conclusion comes to there's a high correlation to the amount of technology that they use. So yeah, yes, technology is wonderful. My my son's in, in college and he takes classes online and he uses the online learning system. I use the online learning platform at the college to disseminate information. I put up PowerPoints and I share articles. I mean, we, we live in an, an era now where we can share information so rapidly that I think that's fantastic. I, I remember being a kid and if my mom and dad didn't have the answer, then the Encyclopedia Britannica didn't have the answer. Well, I had to hunt down someone who did. And now 30 seconds online and we have the answer. And so I, I think that is fantastic because when it comes to learning, if a kid wants to learn something, that is the moment that they'll learn it. If you make them wait two days to get the information, now they're on to something else. And now it's not interesting. It's that the attention is there. So if you can feed them the information while the attention is there, they're more likely to remember it. And I think that is where having this global access to information for kids is wonderful. Downside, there's a mass amount of global misinformation and making sure that what they're getting is correct and not incorrect. But being connected 24-7, I don't think is healthy. They are feeling the pressure of being on demand. If their friends text them, they have to text back right away. They can't wait 
a half an hour or so. It's it's this internal pressure on them to stay in constant communication. Um, also, we're not really designed to maintain two, three, four hundred friends. We're designed to maintain very small groups of friends. So uh, having all these friends on social media or having all these followers or having all these people having access to you puts people in, in kids in vulnerable situations emotionally and the stress of trying to maintain all those. It kind of goes back to, and I see this being a recurring theme uh, here on the show, but it goes back to what is the societal expectation? Where's the line in the sand? And how are you going to fall on that sword when the time inevitably comes to do so? I mean, we talked about it in terms of work and just the lines being blurred on work time and home time as we are evolving into more of a gig economy where people are more frequently working from home. It's like when when work is home, at what point and how do you draw that line? And how do we raise our children in light of that? There's obviously there's a balance there. I don't think it's an easy answer, but there's there's an answer out there. And the question is, what does that mechanism look like and and what can parents do in order to manage that last night i was listening to your one of your previous podcasts as i'm checking my email at nine o'clock at night and you guys were bringing up the checking email late and i am severely guilty of being on my phone checking in with work with students at all hours when I shouldn't. And I, I occurred to me as I'm sitting there being self-reflective and I look over at my child who then picks up his iPad and it's like, wow, okay, I need to get off the phone. I need to get, I need to, I need to set boundaries. You, you guys mentioned an app. And so I will be your first customer if you design an app when it comes to boundaries. I, I think that what we need to do is start modeling boundaries for kids and to do that, we need adult models for boundaries because look around you. Do you know any adults who are good at life work balance of shutting it off when you leave work? Um, my husband owns his own business. He's accessible 24 seven virtually if a customer calls him or he has to put in orders or whatever. So neither one of us model that boundary setting. And it's something that I'm now going to purposely work on in this next week. But by teaching kids that your mental health and your mental well-being is important and that taking the time to spend reading a book or watching TV together without the phone in your hand. I, so many of us watch TV and, and scroll at the same time. Isn't it funny how I was thinking about this earlier, back when we were growing up, and the internet was, I mean, just not a thing. I mean, that, that, that was science fiction mumbo jumbo at the time, anything remotely. It was Star Trek is what it was. When you think back to when we were growing up in the eighties, it's funny to me and kind of ironic that at the time, the big enemy technologically in the home was the TV, the boob yeah. tube, like don't watch too much TV. It's going to rot your brain. And now we're coming back saying like, hey, as a healthy activity, I mean, right or wrong, it's just an interesting perspective. We need to watch TV together without the boob tube, the new boob tube, 
in yeah. our hands so that we can actually focus collectively as a family on the same thing and yeah. then you know have something have have some common ground to talk about after it's like what we started doing at our house is we call it family movie night and that's exactly the rule we put the phones down we all pick a movie and we actually kind of make an event out of it it happens on on friday nights and it's it's for us it's a cool family ritual and something that we can kind of come together on and talk about what movies we kind of want to watch do a little research together and then once we hit that play button it's family movie night and so it it's interesting to me how that whole concept has now evolved into the mobile device and um, just as a side note, going back to something you were saying earlier, when you when you were talking about when you were a kid, and if you didn't ask your parents, or if, if you asked your parents and they didn't know, you went to the encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. If you're to ask a kid now the definition, because I just had this conversation with with my mm -hmm. daughter, if you ask them what an encyclopedia is, their response is essentially, "Well, yeah, it's it's like a know it all, right? It's like a a kid who is like kind of a know it all." They don't even know what an encyclopedia is. Yeah, you're, yeah, the, yeah. My son like, used to call it Encyclopedia Brown. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the word's there. It means to know something. I totally want to talk about what you just touched on. Okay, so we are all individually on our phones and to come together to sit in front of a television to have what's called a shared experience. On our phones, we are not having shared experiences. My husband's looking up his stuff. My kiddo's looking up his stuff. I'm looking up mine. But when we watch the same television show, we don't even have to change positions in the living room. We now have a shared experience that we're engaging in that we can talk about, that we can joke about. Or, hey, remember when we watched Groundhog Day? We realized that we had failed as parents and had never shown Groundhog Day to our 14-year-old. So on Groundhog Day, we were like, okay, we're watching Groundhog Day. And so now we can have jokes and laugh about Groundhog Day. I mean, we have jokes about the movies that he used to watch as a little kid. He loved Penguins of Madagascar. And so some of the, the catchphrases in that have carried on and probably will carry on until the day we die. Those are shared experiences and being on our phone separates us from everyone else. You see a group of kids sitting around a table and they're all on their phones. They're not sharing the experience of sitting there talking anymore. We don't, we just don't have that. And I think that's probably, it just occurred to me while you were saying that I was like, Oh my gosh, that is a, a huge disconnect. There's been research about couples that have been married for a very long time or people that have been together as friends for a very long time. And they actually have memories that cannot be triggered unless the other person is there. And, and they are shared memories between two individuals. And so when they come together, those memories happen. And that's the jokes about all the, you know, the old people being able to finish each other's sentences and things and finish each other's thoughts. It's because they have now almost this collective conscious that didn't exist before. And we're not building those reservoirs of, of shared experiences with people when we sit on our phones and we're separate and isolated. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that we're making a mental map to our understanding of shared experiences that we grew up with, which was going to the movies, watching movies at home, you know, literally renting a VCR. Remember when you had to rent a VCR and yeah. rent the videos? You know, nobody owned a VCR. And if you did, you were fancy. Uh, and then eventually we all owned VCRs. Then we owned DVD players. 
players. And now we just have the collective library of all Hollywood movies at our fingertips and we can pull them up whenever we want. But is it possible that those social experiences that the younger generations are currently building are actually just different? And we don't recognize it as such because we don't have a mental model for it. I'll use the, the reference of memes. Memes are a fairly viral shared experience among people, right? My kids pass memes around all the time and I'm moderately hip enough that I can pick up probably one out of every hundred memes that are going around and be able to share, oh yeah, I saw that or share it with them or something along those lines. Are we just thinking of the old ways in which we would share experiences and not recognizing the fact that there is a new set of shared experiences that these folks are creating and we're being left behind? Is, is that possible? Oh, that's absolutely possible. They're wiring their brains in the world that they live in. So we wire our brains based on the back and forth uh, between our genetics and the environment. So every time we engage in something, it feeds back to our brain and our brain can rewire itself. And it's not rewire, it's just send out dendrites. It's whatever we stimulate the most is going to get the most attention in our brain. And so their brains are different. And you're right, we don't have a concept of their culture and their uh, perspective because we have ours and we're constantly comparing it to our childhood and, and the way things were when we were kids. Memes, you know where memes come from, right? You know where the term meme comes from? No, I don't actually. This is one of the, you know, one of the internet terms that I don't actually know the origin of. So Richard Dawkins came up with this idea and posited this term called a meme which was an idea, behavior, or style that spreads by means of imitation from a person to person within a culture. And he thought that memes actually had substance and that were passed from one person's thoughts to another. It was a real far-fetched theory back in the 90s. And his theory, you know, is still, still floating around out there. But the concept of meme came from that because it is, these are bits of information that are very culturally specific memes to a 14 year old that are funny are not funny to me watching <laughs> we'll be like look at this isn't this funny i'm like mm, no okay. i don't get it i don't get it yeah but they talk to each other with these memes it's it's like it's it is it's their mode of communication the thing is is remember when we were kids we had let's say cartoons and we could all relate to bugs bunny and we had certain sayings for bugs bunny meme culture moves so fast that if you bring up a meme from 10 years ago or five years ago they're like oh yeah that was so last week even you know like we're on to new memes now so they don't again, have these shared, drawn out experiences. Like you can tell the Gen Xers just by saying, you know, certain things from our childhood, metal playground equipment. There's certain things from our childhood that others wouldn't understand, but we don't know if that meme culture is going to last the same way. They're not going to remember memes from last year. Like they, like we remember movies that we watched or experiences that we had. So you don't think 20 years from now that there's going to be groups of them sitting in uh, a retirement home or, you know, sitting around a bonfire going, man, do you remember that meme back in 2020? I mean, you remember don't think that, that's going to happen. You remember that screaming lady in the white cat? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Somebody's not going to yell Leroy Jenkins in a, in a, uh, a retirement home and everybody just starts busting up. I mean, maybe it's grumpy probably going to happen. 
Grumpy Maybe Cat will grumpy last. Cat. Yeah, grumpy I think cat. Grumpy Cat will last. I don't know. I, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I won't be here when they're old, but um, it, it will well, be Well, you don't know. You may have a yeah. digital avatar that, that lives beyond you. Yeah, wouldn't Another that be neat? Topic. My brain in a bottle. Yeah, so, yeah, I... Yeah, anything's possible. Comparing our childhoods to now, as far as technology, it's just been like a whirlwind compared to, again, what the technology we had. Our Atari came out, I think I was 12. I remember getting our first computer when I was in high school. And that was only because my dad was an aerospace engineer. And so he worked on computers. And and so he got us one, which was just a very nice, fancy typewriter. The way that technology has changed, who knows where we'll be in 20, 30 years. Well, it's interesting because it all it all kind of points back to Moore's law about the doubling of technology and and the rate at which it happens. And it's interesting how that has now evolved into something that is not just technologically based, but now socially and societally based as well. Yeah. And actually, yeah. recently, they've been talking about the busting of Moore's law and that there are other theories that are coming along to kind of replace it. And, you know, as the whole, you know, twice the power, half the cost uh, was kind of the basis of Moore's law. But there are now actually new models that they're they're looking at because there's some exponential advances in technology that are taking us beyond Moore's law. And I'll put some links to that in the show notes to kind of look at some of the new models they're looking at that are potentially replacing Moore's law. But it's held up pretty well over time in this brief period in which we've actually been dealing with that sorts of technology. Rebecca, a question for you. The concept of needing to be constantly connected, to constantly know what's going on, to constantly be aware of these hundreds or thousands of friends that you have, what is that doing to people's brains? You know, what is the whole, you know, anxiety-driven fear of missing out actually creating in people that are coming up these days and even adults? What what's happening to us as a part of this in the brain? We yeah, we are so social creatures. I mean, obviously social media wouldn't exist. We are super social creatures and we need people. And even I joke, even introverts need people. It's just on their own time, but we need that connection. We need to be around people. So social media has become a way our lives are busy, right? We're so busy now, but Hey, I can connect with 200 of my friends on social media. So the, yeah, the FOMO, the fear of missing out has triggered that anxiety fight or flight response and the dopamine. So you guys were talking about dopamine and social media. So every time you check in and you see a like or a comment, your brain uh, rewards you with dopamine. It's just like gambling. It's a, it's done on a partial um, interval reward system, uh, a partial ratio. Yeah. Partial. Well, both interval and ratio, but it's a partial reward system. You don't know when you're going to get rewarded or not. So you get these boosts of dopamine. Dopamine is related, yes, to the pleasure center. It's the feel good. It's the cocaine blocks the reabsorption of dopamine in your brain and allows that to float around there, making you feel really good. But dopamine is intimately linked to learning. So in kids and adults with a dysregulation in the dopamine system, we have a disorder called ADHD. So it's an inability to pay attention and to focus on things and that causes a disruption in learning. So dopamine, every time it's released, kind of tells the brain, we're, we're learning this, this is good. And we're going to do this again. This is good. We're going to do this again. And so it sets up a learning pattern. So checking your phone every 
I can't remember what it is now. Every few minutes, people are checking their phone. And every time they do, they get a burst of dopamine and they get a burst of dopamine. And if you try to put your phone down for a weekend and you start to feel that withdrawal, you feel down, you feel empty. And it's not, I think we place a lot of uh, thought on, well, it's because I'm missing out. But I really think what it is, is that we're missing out on that dopamine. We're not getting those boosts of dopamine. If you put your phone down and you go out hiking or you go out doing something that gives you dopamine, then you don't miss it. Playing with a puppy, playing with a baby, you can put your phone down for hours if you're playing with a dog or a baby because you're getting the dopamine from that. But if you just put it down and you don't change anything else, you're missing that reward center and that learning uh, and your brain isn't rewarding you anymore. So we need it. We've also convinced ourselves that we're important. We like every time we talk about ourselves, our brain rewards us with dopamine. We do like talking about ourselves, but in person, we only talk about ourselves about 30, 40% of the time. But online, we talk about ourselves about 80% of the time. So here you are online talking about yourself and getting rewarded because people are liking what you're having to say. Now we get this huge boost of feedback that is very rewarding to us um, and makes us feel good. And so not having that, we don't feel good. Yeah, we're afraid of missing out, but not really. I mean, I, I don't think it's as much of that. Our brain has a wonderful way of making up stories to make sense of things that we don't understand. So I feel bad. Well, I must miss out on my friends. Well, you're probably just missing out on the dopamine because I don't think you really feel bad if you take a weekend and you go do something super fun and you're replacing it with naturally occurring dopamine in the environment. You don't come home and be like, oh, I so missed out all weekend. You're like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. So I think it has more to neurochemistry than anything else. And I, 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 I that makes... You just explained so much, and it's actually just something that I had this morning because uh, we're the company that I work for. We're we're a startup, and everything's kind of going a million miles in thirty different directions for all of us at the same time, and we're all kind of set up remotely, and a lot of how we interact and communicate with each other is I mean, is primarily. Uh, electronically, prim- you know, through email mostly, and so there, there were a few emails that I shot out yesterday, and to me, they were extremely important, but they were directly um, addressed to the president and the CEO of our company, and we've got a very close relationship, and we work hand in hand. But I have to remind myself that this is the person who's running with the baton for everybody right now. And just because it's the number one thing on your plate doesn't mean it's the number one thing on hers. So if you don't get that email response, which for whatever reason you told yourself you were going to get by a particular time, if that time comes and goes, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong. And it doesn't mean that you now have to start figuring out why that response isn't there. And, and it makes so much sense uh, when you look at it from that perspective, because it's, it's, you know, when you rely on that electronic feedback and it's not there and you become so accustomed to it, then, well, it's not there. So there must be a good explanation for it. 
And you start second guessing yourself and then you start wondering, what did I do? Exactly. <laughs> what yeah. did I say? And, and you start what? making apologies for things that you didn't do wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're like, oh, they're mad at me. And so we do, we spin all of that in our head over the fact that we didn't get a response right away. But again, going back to, let's say, 5,000 years ago, when we had a conversation with someone, it was immediate. We didn't wait days necessarily. I mean, I guess if you're sending long communication for weeks, but you expected it to take a long time. We expect people to get back to us right away. And when they don't, we take that as a, as a rejection. And so we are very sensitive to rejection. If you think about tribal groups, if you're rejected and kicked out of your group, it usually meant death. Ostracism hurts. Ostracism hurts the body as if it was physical. Like you can take acetaminophen and that will help the pain of ostracism. So if, yeah, uh, it is, uh, it is so physical. And so we are so afraid of being ostracized from our group, which may be another reason why we stay, we try to stay in contact with people constantly because we don't, we don't want to miss out on the group activities because that might mean that we get left behind and that we get ostracized from our group. Do you think that tribalism is changing as we become more and more connected and we have these digital tribes? I mean, do you really think kind of both the positives and negatives of tribalism are going to continue to be amplified? And are we already seeing that in our political tribes? Oh, oh, I think so. Uh, we're, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of the desire to be in a group. There's discussion about online gaming and the gamers set up their, they, their tribes, their groups. And even though these people have never met each other in real life, real life, whatever real life is, in face-to-face -face interactions, they're still very connected to each other and they still care about each other. And that is a tribe that is very valid. That is very rewarding because if you got kicked out of that group, it hurts as well. Well, look at sports. People are thrilled when their team wins and they run around and they strut and they wear their stuff. They didn't play the game. They didn't do a thing. And yet they, it, there's a term for it. It's called burring, basking in reflective glory. They feel as if they won, even though it's just their team. The 49ers lost. We live very close to 49er territory. And the mood afterwards was very solemn. And a lot of people in the area were very upset. Like they themselves lost something. And again, they didn't lose anything it's we attach ourselves to a group we attach ourselves to a tribe whether we we believe in it or not whether we're even acknowledged or not is if we feel like we belong to a group then we feel better and i and i think the internet makes it how many facebook groups do you belong to how many different Too many yeah right yeah and and so in a way i think that is a positive as much as it is. I don't know if it's a negative. I think it's a positive. I think if you belong to five groups and one of them kicks you out, you still have four. I didn't think of that aspect. I was thinking of what you were talking about, the, the concept of ostracization and ostracization, ostrich, ostrich, um, ostrich, 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 ostr
Ostrich is a whole nother concept where people bury their heads in the sand to ignore everything that's going around them. Uh, but the one, your rejection rates higher, you know, being rejected from these tribes. But two, as you said, you're parts of so many more tribes and you've divided yourself among these tribes. Uh, do you think that this level of dividing ourselves among so many fandoms, tribes, subject matters is going to result in, you know, more schizophrenia, more divisive personality disorders? Is, is that happening? Is there any evidence out there now? No, no, okay. no. Schizophrenia comes. Uh, is, Whew, dot it, yeah, bullet dodge. No, you dodge that. Yeah, you're not going to get different. Um, you're not going to end up with DID, dissociative identity disorder, and a bunch of alters pop out and um, take over your podcast. But uh, so much for no. my retirement plan. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice clones? Um, no, uh, schizophrenia is very biological. I think belonging to groups, I, I just watch my friends who are very sports related. And so we have, you know, football. And then when football's over, we go to baseball because that spring training pops up. And then so, yes, maybe their team lost and they they lick their wounds and then they go root for their their baseball team. And hopefully the baseball team has a good year. Um, and then there's basketball in there. And then those who you know follow hockey. And I, I, I think that having all of those different teams provides a bridge from one to the next to the next. And could very well be very protective. I think that some of the research has shown that isolating yourself at home or being isolated from others is very painful. But if you can get like, so I should do more research on this, but the elderly who are stuck at home, who can't aren't mobile, who feel very isolated, getting them online into online groups or getting them into places where they can communicate with others, FaceTime, all of these brings the outside world to people who may not be able to get to the outside world and, and, and lends itself to them feeling like they belong. And that sense of belonging is vital for our survival and our, and our emotional and psychological well-being. So um, that is one area of technology that has helped. It does help people feel like they belong in a way that they might not have been able to engage with the world otherwise all of this has been very very interesting and i'm, I'm gonna have a lot to unpack as i put together the show notes for this show but i do have a question for you going back to the evolution of brains over time from you know early primates to homo sapiens do you feel like all of this various stimuli that's coming at us and access to nutrition and all these other things is going to cause another major evolution of the brain over time here in the next couple generations of folks? Is that already happening? I mean, what is literally happening to our physical brains with all of the things that are happening? Well, evolution takes a lot longer than a couple generations. It takes thousands of years. If you look at the evolution of the human brain, the areas that seem to have been developed that are different from other primates is the frontal cortex and the parietal. And the frontal cortex is really useful in decision making and higher order processing. And that goes right along with how much information are we taking in at one time. We take in a lot of information. We and maybe that's why we're we're here the way we are, is this co-evolution of our brain and our control over our environment has gotten to us here. And so I don't know if we're going to necessarily see a change in our brain in the next couple hundred years. But what we do see and what we have consistently seen for the last 150 years of recorded is that IQs have consistently increased. So 
back in the early 1900s compared to the late 1900s, there was a, I was looking at a graph last night, there was a 70 year span where IQs, what used to be 100 is now 120. So like every year, every couple of years, psychologists have to go and reassess what's the average intelligence of like a 10 year old. Because uh, average intelligence of a 10-year-old back in the early 1900s is much lower than the average intelligence of a 10-year-old now. It's called the Flynn effect. And so our IQs are increasing. And so, yes, a lot of it has to do with nutrition. A lot of it has to do with education. A lot of it has to do with our environment and the stimulation in our environment. Exactly what it is, they're not quite sure. I will argue, though, that our nutrition now is not necessarily the best and supportive of brain health. And that's a whole nother discussion. And we will probably have you back on the show to talk about that because I know you have a passion for (laughs) nutrition and very specific aspects of nutrition that you feel are poisoning our society. So we will definitely plan to spend some time talking about that in the future. I would love to. Getting back to your question, I I do think that, you know, we are still moving forward. The brain is absolutely amazing to me. I mean, the whole human body is amazing to me. The fact that we're still, that we're functioning at all is, is just, it's just fantastic. I do know that right now, what we know about the brain is not much. And 100 years from now, they're probably going to look back at us and like we were monkeys poking around with sticks. We know nothing about what we're talking about. There's so much more to know about our consciousness and our brain and how we process and perception and and all of that. And, and, you know, the brain is the most important organ in the body, according to the brain. (laughs) It is the only thing that we use to study itself. And so there are inherent limitations in that. Oh, wow. I just, like literally just had an inception moment here where I'm like, wait, we're using our brains to study our brains. <laughs> the walls yeah. just folded in on themselves. Yeah, I heard a little poof out of this ear. Uh, but Rebecca, thank you so much. I know we went a little longer than expected, but this is just an absolutely amazing conversation. And I definitely want to have you back on to explore different aspects and different topics as we kind of move along here. So expect some uh, repeat invites to come back and talk. And you're now our resident psychology brain matter expert on the show. So count yourself uh, lucky, lucky or unlucky, depending on how you look at that. Oh, very lucky. No, I appreciate it. I love talking about this and I'm, and I'm very, very appreciative of this. So thank you very much. I'd be happy to talk about more stuff. Well, thank you. Thank you, Matt, for a good show. Uh, and you. shout out to, to Laura, who uh, wasn't able to join us today, but is here with us in spirit, our spiritual boomer. So thank you guys very much. It's been a great conversation and I uh, look forward to the next one. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. On behalf of my fellow hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and myself, Shane Carlson, we'd like to thank you for listening. Be sure and check out our website at www.techno-biotic.com and be sure to follow us on all the usual social media outlets. Until next time.
Technobiotic.